Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, episode 25, quarter of a century, looked at in a particular way. I just got back from the beautiful state of California. Really is a great state. Really is badly run, though. Since I made my request for more questions... I've received lots of cues that, in good time, will most definitely receive associated A's. But, this week, I've decided to forego the Q and the A and the color supplement and even my monologue and instead turn over the whole show to Jennifer Rubin, who is going to tell us all about how the recent eruption of Mount Vesuvius makes the case for Joe Biden in 2024. No, not not really. Really, I've decided to turn over the whole show to Shakespeare, or at least to the discussion of Shakespeare, and to do so with no less than Daniel Hannan, who you may know from his Henry V-like role in sticking it to the French, among others, and getting the United Kingdom out of the European Union. Shakespeare once said that talking isn't doing. It's a kind of good deed to say well, and yet words are not deeds. Which, well, which tells me that Shakespeare never had a podcast. Clever guy, no doubt, but he never had a podcast. But do you know who does have a podcast? Other than me, that is. The Competitive Enterprise Institute. And that podcast is rather well-timed in my view. Because as Americans deal with rising prices, record inflation, and fears of a looming recession, President Biden's Federal Trade Commission, under the direction of Chair Lena Khan, is pursuing anti-consumer, anti-competitive measures against American industries, thereby killing innovation and threatening America's dynamic 21st century economy. And the worst part? The worst part is that American taxpayers are footing the bill for bureaucrats at the FTC to threaten to break up businesses and stop mergers and acquisitions. That's why the Competitive Enterprise Institute has launched their Eye on FTC campaign, exposing abuses of power at the FTC, calling on Congress to reassert oversight over this rogue agency and protecting consumers from government overreach. CEI is defending free markets and American capitalism, which are the greatest forces for peace and prosperity the world has ever known. So if you want to learn more, visit ionftc.com. That's E-Y-E-O-N-F-T-C.com and consider helping CEI stop abuses of power at the FTC. My guest today is Daniel Hannan, a writer, blogger, and conservative member of the House of Lords. Daniel, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. 
It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Charlie. Excellent. Well, you just wrote a big piece for National Review on William Shakespeare, the title of which is How Shakespeare Changed Everything. I think it was the cover story in the magazine. Yeah, really big day for me getting the cover story in the National Review. Very excited about that. Well, it was a fantastic piece. I, I loved it. And um, Thank you. in the piece, you quote T.S. Eliot, who once wrote that the most anyone can hope for is to be wrong about Shakespeare in a new way. So I thought I would have you on so that we could be wrong together about Shakespeare in new ways. But Fantastic. But before we do that, I have a quick question. I'm always interested in this about your personal relationship with the plays. So how old were you when Shakespeare first clicked? Was it a particular age? Was there a particular work or production that did it? Or did it always click? I mean, I was 15, maybe 16. I remember going on a school trip to see Othello, and I suddenly realized that I could understand it as if it were written in contemporary English. What was your aha moment if you had one? Yes, yeah, so de definitely watching it, and if you like getting past, there's a moment in childhood when you, or in, in your early teens, when you enjoy it, but also enjoy the fact that you're enjoying it, if you see what I mean, you feel very grown up, and getting past that is a, is a big moment of clicking. But I think I recognised that the language was pretty extraordinary from a very young age. I was lucky to have a good English teacher, you know, even when I was like 11, and I remember that he would read with real expression, and, and we'd be thinking, whoa, that's pretty good. And the stories were, of course, moving uh, and interesting and many-layered. I mean, could be interpreted almost endlessly. But I think the real clicking comes when you recognize the depths of the characters. I think there is something about them that makes us think of them as real people. You, you, you really worry about why, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, Viola sees in Orsino or whatever it is. And, and the idea that they, they have no independent existence when you're not reading the play is quite a, quite a difficult one. And I think that requires a certain maturity. For me, I don't think I really reached that point until my early to mid-20s. I'd been happy to go along with the general consensus that this guy was an extraordinarily good writer and probably better than anyone else. But I think it was probably not until, you know, I was adult that I thought there is a profundity here that puts him in a different league. It's a different category from, from any other writer. Uh, and we can talk endlessly about what are, you, what are your, you know, was it seeing, you know, Anthony Scher as the fool in King Lear when you were 13 or whatever. We can do, everyone can, and we can all point to those moments. But I think... I think you need to know a certain amount about life before you can see that this is this is more than just extraordinary writing. Well, that is a good segue then to my first proper question, which is why Shakespeare is so compelling. Now, there are a couple of themes that ran through the piece you wrote for National Review. And the first of those themes is that when people read Shakespeare or see Shakespeare performed, they often believe that they're reading or hearing words that were written specifically for them. And you write, whenever we read Shakespeare's words, they seem narrowly aimed at us, amplifying whatever mood we are in. And you quote Maya Angelou, 
who wrote, nobody else understands it, but I know that William Shakespeare was a black woman. Yeah. Why does Shakespeare have that effect? Is it that he had a better grasp on an ability to echo human nature? Is it that he created these ideas in a way that had not existed within our human conception of the world before? Is it that he wrote so many plays that there is always going to be someone to match our mood or circumstances? I I wish I could answer that with certainty. I've spent, you know, 30 years reading the plays over and over again and wondering how this sorcery takes place. Because the same line can speak to you in utterly different ways depending on what stage of life you're at or what mood you're in that day, and yet always seem utterly true. So you're right, Maya Angelou, of course, was convinced that he was a little black girl, was convinced uh, reading him for the first time that no one who hadn't suffered from racism could have written the way that he did. You know, the Japanese are convinced he's Japanese. You know, radicals are convinced he was a radical. Tories are convinced he was a Tory. The Germans particularly were convinced he was a German. Schlegel, Novalis, Tieck, Goethe, they were, they were all of the view that he was a sort of spiritual Teuton who had been accidentally born in the wrong place. How does it work? Well, look, I don't think it's the plots. As far as I can tell, the only gift which nature didn't bestow on this extraordinary mind was originality as a storyteller. Of the 39 plays, all of them have stories that are either borrowed from directly from history or from somebody else's source material, with the possible exception of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I can't find anyone who's, uh, who, a, any work that he's based that on. So that then leaves us two other things. One is the depth of characterization, the way in which these figures become so familiar that we seem to know them better than we know our friends, because our, our friends don't go around soliloquizing their innermost thoughts. Most of them, anyway. Most of them don't. Yeah, we, we, you and I both know some eccentric uh, National Review colleagues. But, um, but, but, but so that gives us, you know, that we, we get an insight into Lady Macbeth or whatever that we don't get into, into other people who don't do that. But then you come down to the language. And this I just, I keep coming back to it. You know, there are lines that are so incidental, so, you know, cast away, throw away lines of dialogue that I can barely read or, or recall without a catch in my voice. I mean, there's a, there's a moment, for example, when the young woman uh, who's the, the heroine of uh, The Winter's Tale gives somebody a bunch of flowers. And for, I don't know why this always chokes me up, but she, she says, here's flowers for you. Hot lavender, mince, savory, marjoram, the marigold that goes to bed with the sun and with him rises weeping. And I don't know why... I don't know why that that gives me a choke in my voice, but it, there's no one else in the world who wrote like that. There's no one else who who seems to me capable of of describing a bunch of flowers with such poetry. And and that's before we get on to the great set pieces that everyone quotes, right? So in the end, I think it's the extraordinary power of language. He invented so many words. He was writing at a time when the language was particularly kind of protean and freewheeling and voracious, and those two things come together under. The sheer capacity of his of his intelligence. Robert Carlyle, when he was asked what's so special about Shakespeare, said, if I had to, to say one thing, I'd, I'd just say intellect and leave it at that. Your headline on your piece is that he changed everything. What you're saying is that he was better than everyone else. 
But being better than everyone else is different than changing everything. There is a difference between innovation and brilliance. Harold Bloom, who you quote in the piece, argued in a, a long book that I think is well, contains an uh, incredible claim that Shakespeare invented the modern human, that he created our internal dialogue and our conception of the self in the same way as having video cameras did. Suddenly we could see ourselves in a way we hadn't before. And you say in the piece that the more you watch and read Shakespeare's plays, the more you think Bloom was right. What does that mean in practice? Why was Bloom right? How did Shakespeare change everything? How was the world different? How were humans different after Shakespeare had come along? You're right. I mean, it's a huge claim, isn't it? It it comes in a, in a book called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, um, each, each chapter of which is an analysis of one of the plays. And the, the claim comes in his prologue or his, his introduction. You, you hear it for the first time and you think that's somebody who's exaggerating for effect. But then you, then you dwell on the plays and you realize that there's something else going on. And what I think Bloom is getting at is that we, the concept of the individual, which seems so uh, obvious to us, the subjective self, actually depends on certain concepts that we have, words we have for our emotional conditions, words we have to express uh, our, uh, what's happening kind of in our, uh, in our subconscious. <clears throat> and, it, you know, we, we evolved as a, as a tribal species. We, uh, the, the concept of the self as a completely autonomous individual, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, didn't come totally naturally to us. We've evolved towards it, and we were evolving towards it in the West as we began to elevate the individual above the collective in our in our society. But Shakespeare wrote the script for it. He gave us the words and the concepts that we use. He anticipated how we now do it through psychoanalysis and you know uh, the words we use to describe the id and the ego and so on. He was he was three hundred years before that. And he gave us this familiarity, this kind of gentle ease and accessibility when we do it. And that's what I mean when I say we know his characters better than we know other people. I mean, one of the examples that I, I talk about in the, the, the piece that you're, you're being so kind about is if you compare uh, those of his characters who were based on real historical figures with what we know of the real historical ones, you know, Prince Hal from... The, the Henry the Fourth plays and who becomes Henry the Fifth. I mean, the, the the historical Harry Monmouth, the future Henry the Fifth. We we know a little bit about him. He seems to have been a rather pious and serious young man, fought very bravely in his father's Welsh wars. But is is there anyone who, when you talk about Prince Hal or Henry the Fifth, thinks of that version rather than Shakespeare's? Shakespeare has given us this character that is so vast and so endlessly dappled and ambiguous and complete that. The real character, the, the historical one, actually seems much less real. And in a way, that's the best way of, of explaining what I mean by he's invented us. I mean, he, actually, Bloom doesn't use the phrase invented the human. It, it's whoever, whoever wrote his, uh, his headline, whichever good editor he had who came up with that. But invented us as we now conceive of ourselves as these 
autonomous creatures with these little emotional dramas going on inside our own minds and souls, I think it's difficult to find the same modern conception before. All right, so you mentioned there are 39 plays. 39. Some of them are, are of partial or contested authorship. Some people, you know, the, the, there seems to have been at least one that was lost. It was, I think, 37 when I was growing up. It became 39 when Edward III was admitted into the canon 20 years or so ago. Okay, so we have more Shakespeare plays and fewer planets now. I think that's a good trade. Shakespeare's plays, as we now know them, come from something called the First Folio, which you write about in the piece. Can you just tell me what that is? It's the quatercentenary of the publication of this extraordinary compendium without which we would not have half the plays at all. And the half that we would still have, we would have often in, in much more corrupted form. If you think back to when you were at school and you were reading through uh, one of the, the, the plays, there were extensive notes at the bottom of each page. And very often those notes would be about minor differences between the different first editions. Some of the plays we have in quarto form, which is basically a, like, a, imagine like a big sort of... Uh, a3 piece of paper folded over and folded over again, or whatever the uh, the American equivalent of an A3 bit of paper is. So we had, you know, we have Hamlet in that form, we have King Lear in that form, sometimes really badly done. I mean, there are some, some very, very scrappy versions of it, because this was very often reconstituted from the prompt books that actors used, foul books they were called. But then after Shakespeare died, he'd been dead for seven years in 1623, when two of his former colleagues, two members of his, of his troops, of the king's men, decided to put together everything they could find and publish a, a, a complete works. And they drew on, one assumes, his notes and the, the actual versions of the plays that people had been using in their company. I think they'd have drawn on their own recollection. They both knew him very well. And they, they published 36 uh, of the plays, 18 of them, half of them appearing for the first time, including Macbeth, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, The Tempest. I mean, extraordinary to think of a world where we didn't have any of those things. So we have, they, they printed, I think, probably about 750, something like that, of these first folios. They, well, it was, it was called the, uh, you know, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Tragedies and, and Histories, but it, was, it very quickly came to be known as, as the first folio. Most of them actually are in Washington, D.C., just uh, on Capitol Hill, very, very close to Congress uh, in, in the Folger Shakespeare Library, which uh, has more than a, a third of the surviving editions. And then there are various others scattered throughout libraries and institutions and universities. Weirdly, they tend to disagree with each other. Printing was a, was a funny business in those days. There were lots of people involved. Somebody worked out that there were nine different authors, nine hands at work by looking at minor differences in spelling. Uh, and some of them were a lot better than others. And so we have, we have little disagreements in different versions, some of which would materially affect the drama. I mean, there's a, there's a line in King Lear that is attributed in the, in the folio to Cor, C-O-R, and it could be Cornwall or it could be Cordelia. They're both on stage at that moment. And it would work either way, and it slightly affects the, the mood of the, the scene, depending on which one you pick. But with all of those imperfections, with all of those anomalies, I don't think there is any doubt that this is the greatest work of printing that's ever taken place in ours or in any other language. Without it, we'd have lost the phrases and the words that have slipped into our way of talking, have defined how we express our thoughts. Uh, we'd have lost these immense characters. We'd have had no Lady Macbeth, no Cleopatra. 
And we'd have lost a lot of the, the vocabulary, a lot of the, the words he invented. So take a moment in 2023 to think back to this 400th anniversary and to this extraordinary act of salvage, which I reckon must be, re be, be considered the, the greatest rescue work ever carried out in the history of literature. We don't know much about him. He no. was probably not a black woman. But we don't have photographs, interviews, many contemporary sources. We're in the midst at the moment of a frenzy of editing and abridging and censoring of classic works. And we've seen this happen to Roald Dahl. We've seen this happen to Ian Fleming. This week I read they're doing it to P.G. Woodhouse, of all people. Shakespeare's no stranger to that impulse. That's where bowdlerization comes from, I believe. Yep. But I wonder, is it perhaps good that we know nothing about him? <laughs> I mean, one of the arguments you hear now is that it's important to separate the art from the artist, which I think is correct. But in this case, we have no choice because we have no choice. We actually yes, don't know anything really, about him. It's an it's a really interesting question. I mean, you're right. The, the, the bowdlerization has already happened to Shakespeare. In some extraordinary ways. I mean, it is. I, I, I always do a double take when I think that David Garrick, the, the most famous Shakespearean actor of the 18th century, famed particularly for the extraordinary productions of King Lear that would draw crowds in huge numbers, never played King Lear as written by Shakespeare. Every version of it played by Garrick was done with a, with a happy ending, right? Um, which, is not a, which is not a little edit. Lear always bothered the critics. Uh, Samuel Johnson. Just couldn't get over it. He says Shakespeare writes without moral purpose. And what does he mean by that? Well, he, he, he got to the end of Lear and he said, I don't think I'm spoiling it for anyone who's listening to this podcast this long, right? It, it ends pretty horribly with all the, all the good guys dying. And that's a terrible shock. I mean, it's a real effort of will to think of what it was like when you first watched it before you knew how it was going to end, right? Because he sets you up again and again for thinking it's going to be a happy ending. And what Johnson said is not only does, does the, the, the sad ending violate all of the rules of drama, all of the conventions of morality, but it violates all the source material that he was working from, right? He decided to make it this bleak, nihilistic, dreadful ending that then you can't get out of your head. This this picture of, of mad Lear and, and blind Gloucester sitting at the foot of this vast cliff talking about the lack of any justice in the universe. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrific modernist anticipation of all the worst things that were to go on uh, to happen. So, you know, if, if you like, whatever we now do to him, it's, it's, it's going to be quite a stretch to do that, I mean, it, it, but are you worried way, that we're going to do things to him? I mean, I, when I, as you say, we're doing it to everybody, aren't we? Yes. Now, I had, uh, as I say, I had Henry Oliver on my podcast recently, and he made the case that he's less worried about Shakespeare because it's out of copyright and we have the first folio. And as a result, what you can't do in quite the same way is use the monopoly that copyright provides to change the right. official versions of the books and update the text digitally on people's Kindles and so on. But my counter argument was that we do live in a society in which a handful of people in our elite classes are influential and 
can make demands that can trickle down and be voluntarily adopted by all sorts of institutions. We see this on college campuses. And it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility to see our great universities and our great theatres saying, here is a version of Shakespeare's play, the new folio, let's call it, in which the language that was deemed to be offensive in Roald Dahl or Ian Fleming or P.G. Woodhouse, the ideas that bleakness is dark and joy is light, for example, it's been removed from Roald Dahl, is also removed from Shakespeare. Do you worry about that? Do you know, I, I, no, I, th- I think once it's out there, it's out there. And you can always go back to the original. And, you know, different generations have objected to different things. So we, we've spoken about the battlerization, the happy endings. You know, uh, Alexander Pope edited the entirety of the complete works as they then stood according to his own exacting standards. And he kept on trying to improve it. So, for, for example, in the most famous soliloquy of all, in, in, uh, in Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be speech, Pope didn't like take arms against a sea of troubles because it was a mixed metaphor. <laughs> so, so Pope improved it <laughs> right, to take arms against a siege of troubles, right? Now, every generation has its own weird, and, and what we're doing will look as funny to our grandchildren as that now does to us, the idea that, uh, that, that you take it on yourself to improve Shakespeare. I think there's two things that are worth saying. A, the point you've made about we don't know much about him is, is important. It allows lefties to be as convinced as conservatives are that he's one of them. It's it's part of his universality. Even when he writes about absolute monarchy or something, if you're a radical, you will always assume that he's somehow lampooning it or subverting it, because that's that's just how the, the plays work. So I, I think that will help. But I think where, where you're right, or where you were right in your last uh, interview, is not so much about the... It's not about as it were, effacing the originals, they're always going to be there. It's about being able to see productions of the plays which are not distorted by our existing woke prejudices. For a long time, the obsession was with deliberately random and provocative racial multicasting. Now it's with sort of gender swapping, because that's the obsession of our age. And what I find is that almost always those things go with a, with a production that is bad in lots of other ways. Because a producer who thinks that they are dealing with something that needs improving, a producer who doesn't have the modesty to realize that even the finest goldsmith in the world is still fashioning the setting for a priceless gem, is almost always going to mess it up in lots of other small ways. And, they, and that, I'm afraid, is, is the curse of a lot of contemporary Shakespeare. I think even more in the UK at the moment than in the US. And it it means that the ego intrudes. Uh, It means that wherever you're sitting in the theatre, you get an obstructed view of the stage. And I think that's the curse of all art that is hijacked by political types. I mean, from the sublime to the ridiculous, I wrote a brief review of the Super Mario Brothers movie, which I went to I went to see twice with my kids. And the great thing about it is that clearly the people who made it did not set out to make a progressive movie or a conservative movie. They set out to make a movie. And if you set out to do a conservative production of Shakespeare or to do a progressive production of Shakespeare, you get more of the progressive or the conservative and less of the Shakespeare. That's, that's always the, 
Let me let me give you an, an example. The great Ian McKellen, who is a brilliant Shakespearean actor, uh, for my money, by the way, the best ever Macbeth, an incredibly difficult part to play because Macbeth is a, a simple soldier, speaks brutally and roughly, and yet Shakespeare puts these profound metaphysical lines in his mouth. You know, imagine the, the whole bank and shoal of time speech. What if I'd already done this and we're looking back on what I'd done and would I still be the same person? Very, very difficult to get it right. Uh, I've seen... I watched uh, Derek Jacobi do the, the metaphysical poetry beautifully, but fail as the tough squaddy. Uh, I watched Sean Bean in the Albury some years ago, getting it the other way around. McKellen, I think the best, right? And, and a brilliant, brilliant actor. Now, he ju- I just went to see him last year playing Hamlet, probably more than 50 years after he'd first played Hamlet. Now, Hamlet is a moody teenager. And this was the centerpiece, having an 80-something Hamlet, was the centerpiece of a colorblind, genderblind, you know, disability-blind performance. Lots and lots, as I say, the current trend is random female roles that almost seem designed to kind of rub the audience's nose in it and say, we dare you to be bothered by this, right? So we had a, a female ghost, a female Polonius, a female Osric. And I I was talking to, to I, I watch many of these um, plays with a friend who I, I've been, he was a friend from Oxford. We've, we've spent 30 years going to watch Shakespeare together. And if there is a, a more secure basis for a friendship, I've yet to find it. And we really disagreed about this one. I came out and said, didn't that bother you? And he said, no, of course it didn't bother me. The acting was good. And as long as the acting's good, I don't care about anything else. And I said, but but it was impossible to suspend disbelief because, you know, you had Ian McKellen in a hoodie sort of running around, you know, trying to act like a teenager, but he couldn't disguise the fact that you know, there's, a, there's a line where Hamlet says, I, in my heart of hearts, and he was sort of beating his chest. I thought it was going to keel over. And my, my friend said... Dan, you've just seen a play with a ghost in it, right? So why does it bother you having, you know, a, 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 a female Polonius? And I said, because it's a different category of disbelief, right? If you watch Game of Thrones, you accept dragons as a given, but you wouldn't accept an ugly Halisi or a male Halisi. It's a different category of disbelief. Anyway, we didn't agree about this, but in the end, I went away saying, look, it might not matter to you. It might not matter to theatre goers today what sex the characters are. It may be an obligatory requirement of our age that we pretend it, it it's all fluid, but it matters immensely to Hamlet, right? In fact, it's the whole play in a way is about frailty, thy name is woman. All the stuff about the maggots breeding in a dead dog, it's all about this revulsion at procreation and therefore this revulsion at femininity. The whole thing is based on the, uh, you know, what, what, he's, uh, what he's taken from his mother's remarriage. And, and, and the the madness and the get thee to a nunnery and don't have children, Ophelia. It's all this terrifying turning of your back on procreation because you're turning your back on humanity. So you can't do that and then pretend that sex doesn't matter. And that's that's really what I mean when I say everyone gets an obstructed view of the stage. So what do we know about him? Do we have any insight whatsoever into his writing process. In Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus, Mozart is depicted as this extraordinary genius who wanders around and while he is buying cereal or sitting at the bar, he composes piano concertos in his head. And he writes them out once, there's no corrections, and everyone is overawed and Salieri is jealous. Did Shakespeare edit 
Was this difficult for him? Did he go through different drafts? Do we have any idea? It's such a good question. So what do we know about him as a man? Almost nothing, right? There's a, there's a myth that we know unusually small amounts of fact about Shakespeare. That's not quite right. We know very little about anyone in the late Elizabethan and, and Jacobean era. Um, we know about as much about him as we do about anyone else, which is we have birth certificates, wills, uh, a number of legal... He was quite. He was involved in quite a few legal cases, quite litigious. Um, but... And by the way, the fact that we have that is is due to the most unbelievable patient searching by generations of bardophiles, particularly Americans, who've just gone through every parish register in England in the hope of turning up something related to Shakespeare. But we have really nothing else. We don't know if he was Catholic or Protestant, or if he was atheist, or if he, you know, we, we, we don't know if he was gay or so. We, we, we can only infer from the plays. Now, do we have any any insight into how he wrote? Well, I think we do in some cases. As I say, Almost all of those plays were taken from something else. They were usually taken from a from a, a source that we can identify. So a lot of his his English histories were taken from a, a, a work of history by a man called Hollinshead, and we can we can see which bits he left out and which bits he exaggerated or or invented. And that's true of actually most of the the the, the, the tragedies or, or or comedies. They've got a source. Uh, in some time, in some cases, we know exactly which one. One of the examples I, I gave is we there was a, a writer called Thomas North, um, who is some people see as the uh, progenitor of a lot of Shakespeare's plots, who he followed quite closely in a number of his plays. So the famous description that Eno Barbus gives of Cleopatra arriving by barge in, um, in, in Antony and Cleopatra, that is taken almost directly from a passage of North where he talks about the poop being of beaten gold and the purple sails and the silver oars and so on. What does Shakespeare do with it? Well, what he does with it on one level is, is so basic that you think almost a child could do it. He turns it into iambic pentameter and then he alliterates, right? He, so he he, he likes the bee in barge, and he thinks, burr, 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 burnished, burnished, a burnished throne that burr, 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 burned on the water, right? When you put it like that, it sounds facile. And yet, listen to the overall product and tell me who else could have written it. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. I mean, you know, you and I kind of write for a living. I mean, wouldn't you, if you could, if you could have come up with any of those lines, wouldn't it all, everything else you've done just pale away? Yes, no question about it. Why do you think people struggle to believe that Shakespeare wrote those words, especially if we don't even know who he is. There's a paradox there. We say we don't really know anything about him, but he couldn't have done it. Well, I don't, but but others do. Why? I know, it's extraordinary. I think it is partly... So the, the foreigners are convinced that he's in fact a Zulu or a Japanese or whatever they are, uh, and, and which I kind of get. But the idea that he was actually Bacon or he was actually Marlowe or he was actually the Earl of Oxford, I, I just think that is eccentric. I mean, what they say is he couldn't even... However... However inexplicable the knowledge, sorry, however inexplicable the talent, we could at least explain the knowledge if we assume that he was a better educated, better travelled man. I mean, I, I, you know, the idea that he was another playwright, the idea that you would you would write 
kind of pedestrian stuff in your own name and then write this extraordinary stuff in somebody else's name. You know what? They're shifting the problem. I don't understand, and neither does anyone else, how a grammar school boy from the outskirts of Birmingham could have written all of this. But neither do I understand how the Earl of Oxford could have done, you know, or anyone else, right? So all you're doing is is shifting the problem. So I, I, I come back to my slightly glib and silly observation that if the plays were not by Shakespeare, they must have been by somebody else of the same name. <laughs> well, yeah, as, as you say, it's shifting the problem. It's like saying, well, I can't imagine that Beethoven, given his parentage, could have written all of that music because it's too extraordinary. Well, really? C- could Napoleon have written it? Is it easier to imagine that? I don't think it is. Someone had to do it. Right. Somebody wrote it, right? Somebody wrote it. And that's the miracle. Do you find, leaving aside criticisms about given productions that annoy you or detract from the plot or the language or the characterization, do you sometimes find Shakespeare particularly hard to watch? I've been told by people that they they saw King Lear once and it was so profoundly moving and excruciating at the end, that lack of a happy ending, that they've never been again. And you know, I haven't given up Othello, but I find watching Iago scene by scene corrupt Othello almost unbearable. And then, of course, the end is tough to watch from a human perspective. Do you have that response or are you so... All the time. All the time? Actually, well, I have, I, have it, I have a very different uh, problem with Othello, which all goes back to a joke uh, told me by my Telegraph colleague, Tom Utley, who, when he was at school, his English teacher said, look, this is obviously a piece of corrupted text. There's a, there's a line just before the murder where Othello says, put out the light, and then put out the light. And Tom Utley's English teacher was convinced that this was a mistranscription, couldn't have been original. Now, by the way, I think that's absolute nonsense. Uh, it, it, it seems to me pretty clear that what that means is blow out the candle and then strangle Desdemona, right? But, right. but anyway, let that pass. Tom's teacher had said to the class, can anyone think of what the original might have been before the text was corrupted? And young Tom, with the air of a man who'd given the matter great thought, put up his hand and said, might Shakespeare have meant Othello to say, put out the cat and then put out the light? <laughs> and I mean, I, I, which I, for some reason just always cracks me up, you know. I just think At the wrong those... moment as well in the play, if you're laughing in the audience. And so, I, you know, for a long time, I couldn't go and watch that play because I'd see the line coming and I'd start shaking with laughter. And the people around me would you know, give me that mildly dirty look that is the closest that British people come to bloody murder. And, you know, I thought, I just can't, I just can't, I can't ca- carry on ruining this for everybody. I'm going to have to content myself with that hilarious Laurence Olivier film version where the great man has not really understood what a, what a camera is and is therefore projecting to an imagined back row his peculiar idea of how he thinks black men walk and talk and move, which is very funny in a different way. So that that's the thing with Othello, right? It, it's Yes, of course, it's very... Uh, I mean, one, one, uh, one Victorian theatre-goer was so caught up at that moment that he leapt out of his, his seat shouting, Stop, you're great fool, can't you see? Yeah, yeah. That is what I feel when I watch it. That's what I want yeah. to do. I want to shout... 
you know, you sometimes see movies and people in the movie theater will shout, he's behind the curtain or something. Exactly. You know, that's, I want to do it. Exactly. Well, look, I mean, I'll tell you what, I find, like, every, I, I, there is nobody who comes out of a really good production of King Lear without feeling drained, you know. Vex not his ghost, oh, let him pass. He hates him much that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. I mean, it's an absolutely devastating end. Um, the one that I have real problems with is, is The Merchant of Venice. I think if The Merchant of Venice were by any other author, it wouldn't now be staged. Uh, I think the, the, the trial scene is a more powerful anti-Semitic text than the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, because Shylock is not a nasty piece of work who happens to be Jewish. Shylock incarnates and propagates all of the vilest anti-Semitic stereotypes that have come down to us. He's greedy, he's legalistic, he's anti-Christian, he's predatory. And in what you see in the, the trial scene is this horrible working out of a kind of anti-Jewish medieval theology where he's repeatedly offered the chance to move from justice to mercy, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and he keeps refusing and standing by the literal letter of the law. I will have my bond, I will have my bond. And, and, and of course, what that, that's almost never played these days in the way that it was written because it's so offensive to modern sensitivity. But what you're seeing there is the, the old anti-Semitic idea that Jews condemned themselves by refusing to show mercy to Jesus and have condemned themselves ever since by turning away from Christ's truth. And I, you know, if that play were by, if, if, if you like, it's the ultimate antidote to cancel culture. If, if that play were by anyone else, I don't think it would have been performed other than in fascist Europe, where it was hugely popular, understandably, in the 30s. I don't think it would have been performed for 100 years. So how do you see that as art, the modern progressive objection to some art or speech is that it is wrong per se to what they would call platform a given point of view, even if that point of view is merely descriptive. One of the things you point out in this piece is that Shakespeare is adept at shifting his moral universe depending on his subject. So in Julius Caesar, suicide is honorable because it was in that period, whereas in his, what you might call Christian plays, it's not. We don't know this, of course, because we don't know much about Shakespeare, but do you see the rank anti-Semitism in The Merchant of Venice as, in a sense, a triumph because it is describing accurately how those people about whom he's writing would have felt. Much in the same way as, you know, if you watch Schindler's List, you don't say, my goodness, this director must be an anti-Semite or the writer must be an anti-Semite. You say, look at the extraordinary depiction of anti-Semitism. Or do you think that Shakespeare probably did have a whole bunch of prejudices and this is just how he saw Jews? It's, it's a really good question. I have very Shakespearean Jewish friends who fundamentally disagree with my interpretation and say, look, you know, the Christians are a frightful bunch. Shylock has pathos. 
Shylock has humanity. Uh, Anthony, uh, uh, sorry, Howard Jacobson, the, the the novelist, picked me up after I'd, I'd argued this and said, you're, "You're totally missing it. Shylock is the hero. He's the obvious hero. He must have been to Shakespeare all the way through. You know, he he holds his head high with all of these sort of dreadful people around him who are all manoeuvring for money and so on." And I, 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 you know, this is again, it's the end. It's, it's what Keats called the, the, the negative capability, the endless ambiguity, the, the, the unfathomable uh, contradictions. But I just come back to this, this feeling. The reason that everyone knows who Shylock is, the reason he's such a powerful figure, the reason that Disraeli was heckled with cries of Shylock by his political opponents, is because Shylock is made just human enough, just plausible enough. We can, we can more or less believe that he's been driven by bad treatment into this malignancy that is not, it's not without motive. And that, of course, makes it a much more dangerous stereotype. If it, if it were just a sort of Sturmer cartoon type thing, then you know, no one would remember it. But Shylock is given just, in, in my view, just enough humanity. After I'd had this conversation, which was on the BBC with, uh, with Howard Jacobson, a, a friend of mine who was kind of spook at the Israeli embassy phoned up. And he said, he, he, he said, I've just been watching this. Uh, yeah. He said, oh, no, Jews in England when Shakespeare is hiding. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I, there may have been some, but yeah, I mean, in theory, not that the big return was, you know, 30 years later. Yeah, so how has he so well our way of talking? <laughs> I said, what? I, I was watching, you know, you, you ask uh, Shylock a question, he answers with a question. So, you know what, Ari, I don't sodding know. How does he know to call it Tawny Spain when he's never been there? He was some kind of wizard, you know, and, and that ultimately that's the only... Uh, the only answer I can come back to. All right. Well, that's a great place to finish. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dan. A great pleasure, Charlie. All right. Talk soon. All the best. And that's all we have time for this week. Or as Shakespeare might have said, what's past is prologue. Prologue in this case being the end of the show. Thank you to Daniel Hannan for chatting with me about The Bard. Thank you to Jennifer Rubin for sending me those fresh goat entrails. Thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next week.